All right, so our third and final method we need to look at is isometric training. So if you remember from your core two stuff, isometric training is basically holding resistance without a lengthening or shortening of a muscle group. Okay, so it's basically resistance without movement, okay? It is very good at developing muscular endurance. It is also very, very good for rehabilitation, okay? Particularly in people who don't have very good range of motion left. Um, however, it's not very transferable to most athletes because most athletes are required to do some type of movement in their activity. There's not a lot of athletes that need to hold a static position as part of their performance. But we'll go through that in a second. So the positives, first of all, it is going to help build stability. So remember, being stable is your basically you not moving or being coming in stable, which causes movement, all right? Uh, it does promote rehabilitation through blood flow um, with reduced range of motion. So for example, when I had my knee issues, okay, um, obviously, you know, to heal that tendon there, you need to get blood flow into it. And the only way to get blood flow into a tendon is to exercise. But if it's painful to move, then how do you get blood flow into it? Well, one of the things I did, or I was told to do was, isometric training. So basically I would hop on one leg. You may see me do it in class every now and then. I hop on one leg, okay, putting one leg up and then you just slowly bend. And basically I was told, get to the point where it gets, you can start to feel it hurt, but not painful. And then you just hold that position like I am now. So you can't see, but I'm standing on one foot at the moment with the knee bent and my other leg out in front. And basically you just hold this for a minute or so, okay? That's going to encourage a lot of blood flow um, to the quadricep and the muscles around it, and therefore that blood will then transfer into the tendon, hopefully healing it. So that's really good because if I can't bend my leg, then I only need to bend it this much and I can still get the same effect, right? It's also good for developing muscular endurance uh, and especially like looking at that lactate threshold, so improving your lactate threshold by improving your byproduct clearance rate, okay? so. Isometric training does develop a lot of um, lactic acid in your muscles, okay, because they're, they're contracting pretty hard and pretty consistently without rest. So it does develop your body's ability to, one, tolerate that pain higher, and also, two, it will improve the rate at which you can clear out the lactic acid, so therefore you can train more frequently. Negatives behind isometric training, we've got the fact that there is a low transfer to most sports and athletes, okay? Now obviously if the athlete is injured um, or the athlete is required to develop some muscular endurance, then there is going to be good transfer there. But as far as holding that static position, it only applies to a few and I've got, I've got some examples down here. And the other negative is that there's sort of limited exercise usage that you can do with it, okay? Like if you look at um, you know weight training and resistance training that we've already covered, there's like at least 50 exercises that you could do for your legs, but then you look at isometrics, there's not that many, okay? Maybe like five or six. Best suited for, one, injured people, okay? Especially those who have limited range of motion. Athletes who require a static hold within their performance, e.g. gymnasts, okay? There are times when gymnasts need to hold a static hold. The other one that I thought of was a baseball catcher. So you know the catcher who stands behind in the squat position with the mid-up? They're gonna do that for a very long time. They would be very um, benefited by doing some isometric training. And also people who are stuck at home and you don't have any equipment. So you can still get a pretty good workout by holding static positions. Example exercises, you've got your wall sit, so that's where you put your back to the wall, and you, do, you, know, you do your legs at 90 degrees, plank, okay, and human flag. So there are your three dashes that we need to cover for strength training. 
I'm just going to rub this off and then go through two other points, which is where your questions can come from. Okay, so this list is to support you being able to answer a question if you were given one on safe and potentially harmful training procedures related to strength training, okay? So all of the things I've got here are positive. So these are all the things that you will do for safety. Potentially harmful would basically be the opposite of these things. And we'll do a worksheet in class on this to summarize it for you. But let's go. So being educated on correct movement patterns, all right? That's number one, all right? If a person knows how to move correctly with a barbell, dumbbell, using a machine, etc., they have that education, they're more likely to not injure themselves, okay? As opposed to the person who just rocks up to the gym, tries some things, and then, you know, gets messed up. Completing an adequate warm-up. So if you can't remember what an adequate warm-up is by now, then that's really bad. But remember, five to 10 minutes of cardio until you get a light sweat on your brow, then completing some static or more preferably dynamic stretching before starting your actual weight training. Make sure you, you, you use well-maintained equipment because the last thing you want to do is put the barbell down on a rack and then the rack snap and then the barbell fall on you and then you snap. Making sure you are progressively overloading your training slowly. So adding weight to the bar over weeks, if not months, as opposed to like adding it on from session to session to session, okay? Trying to use machines, so that's fixed weights, over barbells and dumbbells, okay? Because machines generally have a lower risk of injury. Making sure you are using a full range of motion. So remember that is your range of motion. It's not the fullest range of motion that you have, but Basically what I'm saying is if you're gonna do a bicep curl, make sure you can do this. You don't just like pick the barbell up and go like this. Uh, using spotters, so very good idea to use spotters. One, if you're a beginner, okay? So that they can you know, grab the weight if it's too heavy or you don't quite know the movement pattern. Or if you're an experienced person lifting heavily, if you get to failure and you can't complete that repetition, it's good to have a spotter there to catch it for you. Using supportive equipment such as a weightlifting belt. So a weightlifting belt wraps around the midsection and gets tied up. It's quite large and thick. The idea is that when a weightlifter puts the belt on and they breathe in, it creates greater pressure in the abdomen area, which great, greater supports their spine and therefore they don't hurt their spine. Uh, moderate intensity. So completing the majority of your training in that moderate intensity, which is sort of between 12 and 30 repetitions. So if I can get a weight and I can do somewhere between 12 and 30, I mean, you know, anything over 20 is gonna be more muscular endurance space, but you can still get really good hypertrophy responses from that. Um, in fact, there are, lots of there are lots of successful hypertrophy training programs that focus on those higher repetitions, like 20, 30 repetitions, um, but that stuff's not going to develop your one rep max very effectively. But also you should understand from this point that if you are training to develop your one repetition maximum, that naturally will come with some potentially harmful side effects. And last but not least, adequate rest. Making sure you are adequately rested between sessions, okay? So don't go and smash your legs one day and then you walk into the gym the next day and your legs are all sore and you're walking funny and you go do legs again. That's probably really bad. Yeah. Right, so that's safe, potentially harmful training procedures. Now in your notes, I'll draw attention to this now before I put up the last section of information. Programming guidelines. Now this isn't the be all and end all, but it does go through what a strength program, a hypertrophy program, and a muscular endurance program would look like as far as the intensity used, the reps, the sets, 
the exercise speed and the time between sets, okay? So you will use this information to develop your own training programs in class. And while arguments can be made that this is good information or bad information, it doesn't matter. The fact is that this is information which is supported by the HSC, and therefore if you can memorize this stuff, you should be able to develop your own successful training programs. So the last thing I'll cover, I'll wrap this off, and we'll go through how can strength training measures be, or how can strength training be measured and monitored? Okay, so how can strength training measures, oh, sorry, I keep stuffing it up. How can strength training adaptations be measured and monitored, all right? So there's two main ways, even though I've got three dashes, but this one and this one are the same thing, right? Through progressive overload or an increase in volume, okay? So volume is sets times reps times intensity, okay? And progressive overload, you simply know, is basically making sure that it's harder than last time, okay? But remember, we don't need to do it from time to time. It can be over time, and that's the safer way to do it. So therefore, over time, if the weight or intensity of an exercise has increased, or the reps have increased, then you are stronger, okay? So if I can lift right now, if I can bench press 60 kilos five times, I train for six weeks, and then I can now bench press 65 kilos five times, I'm stronger, therefore I have made strength gains, okay? The other way to do it is like with keeping the reps the same, right? Which is sort of like what I'm alluding to down here, but we'll give the rep example instead. So let's say I can bench press 60 kilos five times. I then train for four to six weeks. I then can bench press 60 kilos seven times. Well, that's an increase in strength as well, okay? Because I couldn't do that four to six weeks ago, all right? So both of those methods show adaptations occurring. The other one is by completing a pre and post test. So you do a test, you then do a training block, and then you test afterwards. So that's pre and post via what we call an AMRAP, as many reps as possible. A-M-R-A-P, in case you missed that, right? So for example, you put 60 kilos on a barbell and you've got to do this with spotters because you need to do an AMRAP to failure, all right? So you put 60 kilos on a barbell, you do an AMRAP bench press. So remember, bench press is laying down on the bench and pushing the weight away from your chest up to the ceiling. And let's say that I put 60 on the barbell and I do an AMRAP and then I can get 11 reps and then on my 12th rep, I can't get it and my spotters have to grab it, all right? So I could do 11 reps at 60 kilos. I then engage in my training program for four to six weeks. That's given to me by my coach or my trainer or whatever it is. And then after that time period, I then retest my AMRAP with the same weight, all right? So I put 60 kilos on my barbell again, I get down to do my bench press. I can get 13 reps. I can't get 14, but I could get 13. So after training for four to six weeks, using the same variables, okay, keeping everything same, same, I can do two more reps. That clearly shows that I have made adaptations in my strength training, and therefore I'm now stronger, or I have more muscle, etc. okay? So that is how strength training adaptations can be measured and monitored, and that is the end of our strength training video. Thanks, bye.